listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Together uh, to the earth. Um, and, and welcome, welcome Jesus. Um, but in the mid-19th century, a different interpretation of this passage was put forward. And it became particularly... Um, prevalent in the American church. So it was put forward by a guy named John Nelson Darby, and he essentially interpreted 1 Thessalonians 4 to mean that Jesus' was go- Jesus's return would be in two stages, and the first stage would just be a partway return. So Jesus would return partway. He would whisk away those who were Christians away from the earth They would literally disappear from the earth and get taken back up to heaven. So Jesus comes partway down. Those who trust in Christ at the moment get taken up with him, and then they all go back to heaven. They don't come to earth. There's no resurrection of the dead, at least at this point. Um, This came to be known as the rapture. Uh, It was very, very popular when I was a kid um, in the 80s. Um, probably because a very influential series of books was written called The Left Behind Books. Uh, I can see some people nodding. You know what I'm talking about. And those books are about the people who get left behind when the rapture happens. Um, And uh, I remember sitting in traffic and seeing that car in front of me having a bumper sticker that said, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Um, So stuff like that, very strange stuff like that. But um, so there's lots of reasons for this new interpretation that, that Darby's putting forward. But at least one important one is that American Christianity at that point had become deeply invested in what is called dualism. So dualism is the idea that all of reality is made up of both a spiritual aspect, either a spiritual aspect or a material aspect, and that the spiritual aspect is superior to the physical one and exists apart from the physical aspect. There's lots of reasons why American Christianity was so deeply invested in dualism, which I don't have time to talk about now, but are super interesting. So if you want to know more, feel free to come ask me. Um, I love to talk about it. so, uh, so this idea of the rapture, though, helped uh, reaffirm dualism. The idea that our ultimate uh, goal was to get ourselves up into heaven, a spiritual realm, um, and we would essentially become spiritual beings there. The rapture totally sidelines the resurrection. The resurrection is not a major part of the rapture. Um, in fact, last night, Nathan and I were talking about it, and we were like, what, do we, what does Darby believe about the resurrection? And we weren't sure. He essentially just sidelines it. Um, however, here's the problem. Dualism is not the message of Scripture. From start to finish, the Scripture is opposed to dualism, and this is a good thing. Um, God is the one who created the physical world in the first place. He said it was good, and Scripture affirms over and over and over from start to finish that God loves the world that he has created, and he loves the things in the world that he has created, particularly human beings. And so the Son of God became a human being. That is the opposite of dualism. When God, who is a spiritual being, becomes a human being, Uh, That's because he loves us and he loves this world. He became a human being. He came to this earth. He promised to return to this earth. He promises to raise his people up from the dead as full physical spiritual beings who will live where? On this earth for all eternity with God himself. Revelation tells us that God will make his home here 
We do not go up there. He comes down here. So I don't, uh, I want to be careful how I say this, although I don't know how to be. The rapture isn't biblical. I hope that's not bad news to anybody. Um, What the Bible actually says is way, way, way better news. Um, And so um, think of the Left Behind books as kind of a fairy tale or something like that. Maybe they're fun to read, but they are not a good interpretation of Scripture. Scripture tells us that Jesus loves us. He loves this earth. He is not going to whisk us away from it. He is going to come down to us, and as he says, he will make all things new. And that's good news. Today's scripture comes from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather, for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against the army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who was who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Bring your sword to church day. Uh, I forgot to mention, we did not do announcements today, uh, so please pay attention to your e-blast. There's lots of different things to be looking forward to in the coming weeks, but with the holidays, we just kind of cut that out of the service. Um, Let's get into today's passage. Like I said, this is going to be a little bit of a stark contrast to the cute, sweet little Christmas program you saw, as you can tell from our text today. Um, How many of you have ever experienced someone being both good and terrifying at the same time? Anybody experienced that? You got a person in mind? Uh, For many of us, this is our dads, right? Um, If you had a good dad anyway, you know he can be a ton of fun. 
you know, he has good intentions for you always, but you disrespect mom, you, you do the wrong thing to your sibling, you have reason to be afraid, right? Uh, for some of us, this could be a teacher or a coach. I had a basketball coach in high school, just carried this calm, quiet sense of authority. I know we got coach in here today. Uh, and, and yet, and so we all loved him, but we feared him. And man, he ran us to death when we misbehaved. So, so he was both incredibly good and terrifying. Like you didn't want to cross him. And that's exactly what we find with our King Jesus. He's both good and terrifying to the 100th degree. Today, we are finishing up our series, our Advent series, called The Not-So-Baby Jesus. What we're doing here is we're looking at four portraits of Jesus, four pictures of him uh, that we get throughout the scriptures, and Jeannie's been doing an awesome job painting. Uh, She's not finished with the one that I'm doing today yet, so you'll get to see that next week, but I encourage you to look at those things. And what we're looking at is not Jesus as he came in the first Advent, as a baby, meek and mild, not even Jesus as a grown adult in his, in his earthly ministry, um, you know, as a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. But we're looking at him as he is right now, our great and cosmic king coming in awesome, terrifying, complete power to trample down his enemies. So today, I've entitled the sermon, Jesus the Terrible. Jesus the Terrible. And that word terrible, of course, can mean just something bad, right? You say, well, that's, that's, I've got this terrible cold or whatever. But it can also mean causing or likely to cause terror. And of course, I'm using the word in the second sense today. We see Jesus the Terrible in that he is, in fact, causing terror on all his enemies you might say, Pastor Dave, that's not good to think of Jesus like that. It's not good to think of Jesus as terrible, right? Jesus is good, and you're right, he is, but he's also utterly terrifying. And this time of year, I think I've mentioned it already, I can't help but think of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's always winter and never Christmas. Sometimes it feels like that in South Dakota, doesn't it? And, you know, we get the snow and the lampposts, and it, I just, kids, if you haven't seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, please see the movie, or better yet, get the book and read it over the holidays. It's a fantastic book. Um, but if you haven't, um, if you don't know what it's about, Narnia is this magical land that four English children, the Pevensies, discover in the back of a wardrobe. And they go into this magical land called Narnia, and the king of Narnia is a lion named Aslan. He's mighty. He's incredibly stunning and magnificent. And listen to how the author, C.S. Lewis, describes the first time Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy meet Aslan. Aslan, of course, is the Christ figure. He represents Jesus in these books. But as for Aslan, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes, and they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembling. See, friends, Lewis is using this word terrible in the same sense that I'm using it today in this sermon. He's describing Aslan in this way that he's both good and completely terrifying at the same time. And here's my conviction as we read this text. I'm 100% convinced that if we saw our King Jesus in all his glory and all his splendor right now, there's not a single one of us that could stand to our feet. Not a single one of us. And some of us would be clawing to try to get under the, carp- or under the concrete here. Like we, it would be that terrifying to see him in all his glory and all his might. 
And that's the way we see him in this text today. Now, at the beginning, it's important for us to just kind of reconcile with the fact that we all have ways that we like to think of Jesus, don't we? We all have our favorite pictures of Jesus. And I would argue one of them has to be Jesus in the manger, right? Just like we saw him this morning. I think that's one of the reasons why people love Christmas so much is it's, it's wonderful to think about the, the, the incarnation. It's amazing to think about God becoming a little helpless baby. But there's another aspect to it, I think, for us, and that is Jesus is awfully manageable at that stage, isn't he? He doesn't demand anything of us at that stage, right? He doesn't, he, he doesn't intimidate us as a baby in the manger. So most of us would actually prefer to think of him like that. And it's okay to, to, to like the portrait of Jesus in, a, in the manger, but that's not the only portrait of him. It's also okay to love the, the portrait we see of Jesus in the Gospels, right? Healing people, eating with people, loving people, challenging the religious leaders, Raising the dead, all these wonderful portraits we see in the Gospels. But if we limit our scope of Jesus just to what we see at Christmas and throughout the Gospels, our, our view of him will be terribly incomplete, and our hope will really suffer because of it. See, friends, it's important that we get to know the Jesus of the first advent, the Jesus that came at Christmas 2,000 years ago, right? The Jesus that came in meekness and humility and self-sacrifice, but it's equally important that we get to know the Jesus that is coming again, the Jesus of the second advent, the second arrival, who comes in complete and utter power and kingly authority. It's important to remember that Jesus is both the lamb and the lion, and we see him entirely as the lion today. So don't be afraid to admit today, as we go through this passage, that it's a little startling to you and even a bit disturbing. It was to me all week as I'm reading this. It's, it's a little bit troubling, honestly. That's okay. That's because the Jesus that we see in our passage today doesn't remind us of the Jesus in the manger at all, and he certainly doesn't even remind us very much of the Jesus that we see throughout the Gospels. It's a different picture, right? The Jesus in the Gospels we see is uh, humble, washing the disciples' feet, always taking the low position. The Jesus we see here in Revelation 19, he's exalted. He's glorified. He has the highest position. In the Gospels, we see the Jesus who is gentle, forgiving sinners, healing the sick, even raising the dead. Here we see the Jesus who is ruthless, destroying all who oppose him. In the Gospel, we see the Jesus who bleeds for his enemies. Here we see the Jesus who sheds the blood of his enemies. It's not the picture that we're used to, and we're way, way, way more comfortable with the other portraits of Jesus but I'm telling you, this is really important if we're going to understand him fully. Both portraits, the first Advent Jesus and the second Advent Jesus, are critical to you getting it. Remember, this book, Revelation, was actually written to a group of Christians in the first century who were suffering under the persecution of the Roman Emperor Domitian. So they're losing loved ones. They're, they're watching family members tortured, crucified, burnt at the stake. And then Jesus gives them this book to John. He says, I want you to give this to my church to encourage them, to fill them with hope. And, you know, what fills you with hope more than when, you're, when your family's being persecuted and even killed by a ferocious emperor? What gives you more hope than to hear, hey, your great king is coming back to kick some butt? That gives you hope, right? And that's the purpose of this book of Revelation. That's good news. So we're going to look at this today. Strap on your seatbelts, and hopefully we have strong stomachs as we look at this passage here, and we're just going to walk through it line by line like a Bible study here, 
because there's just one powerful descriptor after another to describe Jesus the terrible. Let's start at verse 11. Then I saw a rider on the white horse. Now, this imagery, the rider on the white horse, is powerful, especially for Jesus' Jewish audience. It's a really Jewish picture that John is, is writing down here for these people. This is exactly what they had expected and desired for the Messiah to be. See, in that culture in that time, um, when, a, when a Roman general would win a battle, they would ride in a parade on a white horse. They would have their legions around them, and they would be dragging their enemies behind them. It would be this great big parade of victory. So when, when these people hear, hey, there's, there's a rider on a white horse, they hear, this is a victory parade. This is a military general coming in military might, and he's already victorious. This is great news, they would have thought, a rider on a white horse. Then it says he's called faithful and true. With righteousness, he judges and makes war. So Jesus is given four different names in this passage. We'll look at all of them. But the first is faithful and true. That's Jesus' name, which suggests Jesus is trustworthy. He's always trustworthy. He always, always, always does the right thing. He comes in perfect justice, which is great news for God's people. That's wonderful news, rejoicing news for God's people, and it's terrible news for Jesus' enemies. And for those of you who've seen the movie Braveheart, a uh, movie made back in the mid-90s, um, makes me think of William Wallace when, you know, he's the, he's the guy that's leading this Scottish revolt against the English and their tyranny. And he's talking with the princess of England, and she's asking him, why did you come in and sack York? You know, what in the world is going on here? And he says, well, this is a revolt against all the murder, rape, and theft for the last hundred years. And she's like, I didn't know anything about this. She turns to her assistant and he says in French, in her language, don't listen to anything this guy says. He's just a lying savage. Well, he replies back in French, I never tell lies, but I am a savage. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I never tell lies, but I am a savage. So he's called faithful and true, he judges in perfect justice and makes war on those who oppose him. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like flames of fire. Now, Nathan covered this imagery in the first sermon in this Advent series in chapter 1. And if you look on Jesus, or Jeannie's painting back here of Jesus with the keys, it's pretty awesome. She's even got the flames of fire in his eyes there. And I don't know about you, but this is terrifying. You know, the, the eyes that had once looked on people with compassion are now burning flames of fire, piercing eyes of fire. And if I was going into battle with someone, I'd say the last thing I want to see in the opposing general's eyes are flames of fire. I mean, that's not a comforting sight, is it? Uh, there's, a, there's a story from the American Revolutionary War of uh, one of the officers, William Prescott, who said to his men, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes, which is basically like saying, we're going to get close, boys. We don't want to waste ammo. Don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. Now think about what this day will be like at the end when you're coming up against the general King Jesus. Don't fire un unless you see the flames in his eyes. And then you think, well, actually, we can see him from way back here. They're big burning flames of fire. On second thought, let's not fire at all. He's got fire in his eyes, you know, like, let's just run. That's what you would be thinking if you came up against General Jesus with eyes that are like flames of fire. It goes on, verse 12 says, on his head are many crowns. So if we read all the way through the book of Revelation, there's crowns everywhere. In chapter 
Um, six, there's another rider on the white horse that is not Jesus. He has a crown. Uh, the woman who gives birth to the child is wearing a crown with 12 stars. And then even the great dragon, Satan himself, is wearing seven crowns. Isn't that interesting? Uh, that's signifying that he is the false king, the, the perfect false king that has deceived many. But Jesus has more crowns than them all because he's been crowned with many crowns, it says. He is, in fact, the true king. He's the king of kings. Verse 12 goes on. It says, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. So just when you thought this terrifying Jesus couldn't get any cooler, he's got a name that nobody knows but he himself. Isn't that awesome? You know, we all know mysterious people fascinate us. Um, when, you, when you meet somebody, you're just like, I just can't really quite figure them out. They just have this mysteriousness to them. How cool and mysterious is that? Like, he's got a name that nobody knows but he himself, a secret name. I've thought of developing one of those for myself. You know, maybe just this name that I call myself, you know. But, but Jesus has this name that nobody else knows. It's really, really cool. You can't file him into any category. It's Jesus the terrible. You think you have him figured out, but no, you don't. There's stuff about this God of ours that nobody knows, but he himself. He's fascinatingly good and terrible at the same time. And it gets more intense now. What is this King Jesus the terrible wearing other than crowns? A robe dipped in blood, according to verse 13. I was talking to Charity. I was like, do you think I should wear a robe with like blood on it? Like real blood on it? You know, it would be, it would be so powerful I did bring the sword today, but, but I didn't do the, the robe dipped in blood. Now, there are some commentators that say, oh, this is Jesus' own blood, right? It's his sacrificial blood. His robe is dipped in blood. And I just got to say, I, I agree with the other commentators that say, no, in the context, this is not Jesus' blood. This is the blood of his enemies, right? He, this, is, this is terrifying. Um, immediately, I'm taken back to movies like Gladiator and Braveheart, where anytime you watch a battle scene it, when, where there's hand-to-hand -hand combat, they walk away and their clothes are stained with blood. So it reminds us of Isaiah 63.3, where there's this prophecy of a blood-stained deliverer. Listen to this. It says, I have trodden the winepress alone. We're going to get to that other metaphor, the winepress. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. It's gory, but this is exactly what the Jews had been looking forward to in a Messiah. You know, the first time Jesus came, he was a huge disappointment. A baby? That's not what the Jews wanted. But the second time he comes, that's exactly what they're talking about. A blood-stained warrior general who's coming to trample down God's enemies. So he's got a robe dipped in blood. His second name is the Word of God. Look at verse 13. His name is the Logos of God. Now, which gospel refers to Jesus as the Word? John's gospel, right? So a lot of times people have linked Revelation to the gospel of John saying, hey, maybe they have the same author because he, he calls him here the Word of God as well. Obviously, we don't know exactly which John wrote the book of Revelation or took down the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, but it's interesting. And that's right. Jesus is God's word to his people. He's everything that God wanted to say to his people in a person. So Jesus is both the messenger and the message himself. He is God's word. 
And not only that, but he leads the armies of heaven. Look at verse 14. As if Jesus the terrible weren't scary enough by himself, he also has all these armies of heaven behind him. You know, this terrifying sight. So we don't live in a time where warfare is done, you know, in a valley with both armies lining up from one another and just kind of sizing each other up. But that's how warfare was done for much of history, right? You would, that was part of the tactic. You would get a bigger army together so that when the other army looked at you, they would be scared and sometimes even surrender just by seeing the size of your army. Are you supposed to either give you confidence or fill you with terror just by looking at the other army? Jesus has all these armies of heaven. No army that any man has ever mustered could even touch it. It's behind him. It's this army with banners. It's terrifying. And yet, verse 15 says, these armies of heaven turn out to be just for show. Jesus doesn't even need him. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword. I've tried to picture this. And I kind of wish that Jeannie would have tried to draw this. You know, like, is it like this? Or I don't, I don't know how you have a sword coming out of your mouth. Or if it's just, if it's just purely for imagery's sake, because, you know, the, the Bible, the word of God, is referred to as a sword in Hebrews. Right? But, but Jesus has this sword coming out of his mouth, John sees. And that's, with, that's the, the weapon that he uses to strike down the nations, verse 15. So he doesn't need all the armies behind him. That's the only weapon that's needed in this battle, is one word from Jesus' mouth. He's that powerful. He's that mighty. It's not even a contest. He's the one who makes this an unfair fight. Remember, Jesus is the one that spoke into being all these enemies of him. He's the one who created them. He was there in the beginning, and he can take them out just as easily. It reminds me of the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther. Remember that one stanza? It goes like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Isn't that interesting? I've always wondered about that. Luther's saying, Jesus just utters one little word, and the great dragon is done. It's no contest. It's not hard for Jesus. It just takes one word for Jesus, the terrible, to defeat his enemies. It says in verse 15, it goes on and says, he will rule them with a rod of iron. So this was prophesied in Psalm 2. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will smash them like a potter's jar. It's also mentioned again in Revelation 2. It speaks to the judgment of King Jesus on the nations that have come against him. He's literally dashing them to pieces. And then in verse 15, it says, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is talked about in several places. Revelation 14 is about this. I've already read Isaiah 63. And this imagery is really lost on the modern reader. We're like, what, is, what does that mean, to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty? Well, back in that day, how they made wine was, first of all, you had to get grape juice. So you would gather all the grapes, and you would put them in this big wooden box called a wine press. It's kind of gross, but you'd actually take your, I mean, they didn't wear socks, but you'd hopefully clean your feet, and you would squish the grapes, right? You'd walk all over them, squish the grapes. The juice would splatter everywhere, and it drained the juice down, and that's how you would make the grape juice, and then you could obviously ferment that to make the wine. And that's the picture here that we get in Revelation 19. God will prepare the wicked for final judgment by gathering them together to be trampled on. 
One commentator writes it like this. He says, Christ will gather earth's armies together where he will tread down his enemies. Just as grapes are smashed and torn in a wine press, releasing wine, the enemies of God will be ripped apart, creating a tidal wave of blood. A tidal wave of blood. I'm like, man, I know it doesn't sound like the Jesus you're used to, right? It doesn't sound like that. I was wrestling with this all week. I'm like, this is you, Jesus, right? We sure we got the same Jesus? Yeah, it's the same Jesus. He's the lamb and the lion. And then this last name, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this terrifying Jesus, he has a fourth name. Remember, the first one's faithful and true. The second one's a name nobody knows but he himself. The third name is he's the Word of God. And the fourth name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what's pretty crazy and cool is Apparently, he's got like this stitching on his robe. It says, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And he's got like a matching tattoo on his thigh. And we all know, how many of you have tattoos? Come on, you can raise your hands. Tattoos just automatically make you look a little tougher, right? Which is why I don't have any tattoos. I'm already tough. Nobody, nobody, needs, nobody needs me to be any tougher than that. But they just make you look a little more bad, right? When you have a tattoo. And Jesus has this crazy cool tattoo with King of Kings, Lord of Lords on his thigh. I mean, it's, this, is, this is a bad dude right here. I just put the whole picture together. So just think about it. He's riding on a white horse, eyes like flames of fire. He's got this giant sword coming out of his mouth, leading this massive army and a big giant tattoo on his thigh. It's Jesus, all right, but it's not the Jesus that we're used to seeing. He's not Jesus meek and mild. Definitely isn't Jesus the helpless little baby in the manger. And that's okay. We need to get used to this Jesus as well. He's both good and terrifying at the same time. Jump back to the lion, witch, and the wardrobe for a second. I love when the beavers, the beavers are best, some of the best characters in the book, by the way. Um, they're, they're talking to the Pevensey children about Narnia and kind of giving them the lowdown of how things work in that country. And um, they, they talk about Aslan, and, and Susan's like, who's Aslan? And uh, Mrs. Beaver, or, or Susan says, or Mrs. Beaver says, he's a lion. And then Susan says, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, says Susan. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's the big idea for today, friends. Jesus is not safe. He's not a tame lion. He's utterly terrifying, especially for his enemies, but he is good. He is good through and through to ultimate perfection. And if you're wrestling with this idea of how God can be good and loving and yet full of justice and wrath, well, join the club. That's something we wrestle with from time to time. All of us wrestle with from time to time. But in my wrestling with those concepts, how, how Jesus in, in his personhood holds those things together in perfection, I found it really helpful. A theologian uh, by the name of Miroslav Volf, who was a Croatian theologian, and he's lived through different experiences than I've had. And how many of you know your experiences really inform your theology, right? They do. They, they make a difference. And here's what he says. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. 
That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Does that make some sense? I know it's not an easy concept to see this Jesus here in stark contrast to how we see him in the manger and even in the Gospels. But God is wrathful, in fact, because he is love. And you wouldn't want a God who wasn't good enough to put the world to rights in the end. And that's what this picture is. It's in the end. God is going to make everything right, which is great news for his people, and it's horrible news for his enemies, which brings us to this inevitable battle scene. This is how we're going to close. Having been given all this detailed description of Jesus the terrible, we might wonder, what is this battle going to be like, right? There's these nations assembling against King Jesus the terrible. He's on his white horse. What's it going to be like? Well, the battle itself is a complete snooze fest. Honestly, it's boring. It's over before it starts. Notice the angel makes this confident declaration before it begins. He invites all the birds out to have lunch. He's like, all right, birds, time to eat. He knows how this is going to go. He doesn't have to guess. He invites them to the great supper of God. And then notice the text in an anticlimactic way says the beast was captured. Hmm, that was easy. There's not a lot of detail there. And then the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire, also easy. Then the rest of the people were slain with the sword, which comes out of the mouth of him that sits on the white horse. So yawn, game over, Jesus wins again. That's the way it goes. It's just that simple. It's hard to really even call it a battle. I mean, is it a battle if nobody gets to draw their sword and Jesus just wins like that with one word from his mouth? That's how it goes when you're with King Jesus. Let the great supper of God start. Now, There are two suppers in Revelation 19. There's the great marriage supper of the Lamb, which all of God's people are invited to. It's this wonderful banquet with the best food and rejoicing and wine and and great, great joy with King Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for them. But then there's the great supper of God, which the birds are invited to and the people are on the menu. I think the Great Supper of God is badly misnamed in this, in this passage because the Great Supper of God sounds kind of positive, like, I want to go to the Great Supper of God. No, you don't. You want to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You do not want to go to the marriage or to the Great Supper of God. That is a supper for the birds. That's what I've renamed it, okay? You don't want to go to that supper. Now, here's the great thing. This lion, who we see in this passage, remember a couple weeks ago, is also the Lamb who was slain. And as he was slain, he invited all of his enemies. He says, I have died in your place as your substitute. I have taken your sin upon me so that you can be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he's extended that invitation to all of his enemies. He's saying, come, welcome, come into my kingdom and be with me forever. That invitation goes out to you as well. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus says, come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't have to go to the great supper of God or a.k.a. the supper for the birds. You don't have to be at that one. He invites you. He implores you. He's done everything to give you the pass, to give you the ticket to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Won't you come? I would urge you, don't waste another day. There's no guessing how the battle's going to go in the end. King Jesus will win, and everyone who opposes him will be destroyed. There's no getting around that. So come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He gives you a free invitation. Bow the knee to him, surrender to him, and run to him today. For those of us in here who are Christians, this is cause for great rejoicing, right? This this book was written to inspire incredible hope in a suffering people, in a suffering group of Christians. This is your king. He's coming back soon. He's going to put everything right. Let this passage bolster your hope. You're on the winning team. If you're with King Jesus, it isn't going to be a fight. You will not fight. I hear some people talk about this passage like, yeah, let's take up our swords and let's go fight as Christians. It's like, no, you don't do any fighting. Leave that to King Jesus. He wins the battle all by himself. We are to suffer, actually, well in this time and wait for him. Right? Notice King Jesus isn't saying, now while you're waiting for me, pick up the sword and start killing people. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, someday I'll come back and I'll put everything right. I'll do the justice. I'll handle that. So let's hope in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this difficult text. We want to see you rightly, Jesus. We don't want to make up some version of you that fits our own ideals. And so help us. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to receive you as our great and cosmic king. Americans aren't great with kings. We don't have a great track record there. So would you help us, Lord, as we seek to submit to you and to love your lordship and your leading in our lives. We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.